All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the fighting getting worse by the day. Massive explosions heard today in the capital city of Kiev. That fire is out at that giant nuclear plant. That nuke plant is now in the hands of Russian forces. I've got analyst David Frum standing by. First, have a listen to this. Secretary General of NATO speaking earlier this morning with a dire warning about the days ahead. Have a listen. This is the worst uh, military aggression in Europe for decades. With the cities under siege, schools, hospitals, and residential buildings shelled, reckless actions around a nuclear power plant last night, and many civilians killed or wounded. The days to come are likely to be worse with more death, more suffering, and more destruction. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic magazine. His latest book is Trump-ocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show today. David, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Hey, David, it was a very dark picture there painted by the Secretary General of NATO today, and the whole world is watching the bombardments of civil targets, civilian targets in Ukraine. What is your analysis today of, of the situation on the ground right now? Where are we at today, and where are we heading, in your opinion? Um, we're in a race uh, of a time between um, the suffering of civilians in Ukraine in the face of this hor horrific military campaign and the power of the economic sanctions that have been deployed by the NATO countries against Russia. Um, military aid is also flowing to Ukraine. Um, that's a powerful reinforcement. So there are two clocks, um, one bad, one good, and we'll see which moves faster. Should, why attack a nuke plant? The world was watching this, a firefight outside of a nuclear plant. The Russians now in control of that. Are they just trying, like, they're trying to turn the lights out in Ukraine? Is that what's going on? Yes, that, that nuclear plant is the major power source for the city of Kiev. They're trying to uh, turn off electricity. They'll try to turn off water. They're trying to turn uh, the city into rubble to starve out its, its defenders. What, what, is the, what is the strategy there? What, what's going through Putin's mind here? He just wants to completely demoralize the, the population? Um, he, it looks like what he hoped to do was to seize power very quickly in a lightning raid, and when that failed, he's now yeah. trying to just hit them with a hammer until they give up. Yeah. Should NATO stay out of it? We just heard from the, the Secretary General there of, of NATO once again ruling out a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, NATO forces not going to engage Russian forces in Ukraine. Is that the right the right position for NATO right now in the face of this aggression? Yeah, we're trying to get to a smaller war, not a bigger war. We're trying to get to peace, not to a bigger fight. Um, so I think we've got, the, we've got the right approach. Economic sanctions plus military aid, um, uh, plus uh, lots of pressure on Russia from many, many different players. But we're not trying to have, a, we're not trying to have World War III here. We're trying to end this war, not have a bigger war. Yeah. Speaking to David Frum from The Atlantic magazine, speaking of the sanctions, David, Canada announcing more sanctions yesterday. Uh, the impact of the sanctions appear to be it appears to be working. It looks like the Russian economy is in turmoil. You know, their stock market's been shut down. We see these people lining up at ATMs trying to get their money out of the bank. Do, do these sanctions are the, the sanctions effective at this point, do you think? 
Well, I wrote a detailed article in The Atlantic um, that was published last week uh, just about what these sanctions do, and they are the strongest sanctions in the history of the world. Uh, but they have to be joined to military re- aid to Ukraine, military reinforcements. Um, the Russians only have so many tanks. They have a lot, but only so many. If Ukraine can have an infinite number of anti-tank weapons, it can knock them all out. Yeah, what are you, what's your opinion of the Russian military strength on the ground right now? I mean... It seemed like you said it, Putin appeared to be planning for like a lightning, lightning quick victory there. It's not happening. I saw some analysis yesterday, yesterday about why there's not more effective uh, control of the skies by a Russian air force. Maybe it's because their their equipment is not as good as we as we thought. Like, are the Russians less well equipped than we maybe thought at the start of this? The, the issue is not equipment. The issue is morale, and if we, we that's the the pressure point. So one of the ideas I've advanced is we should make it known to the Russians that any Russian deserter, any Russian prisoner who has not committed war crimes, if you're captured by the Ukrainians, uh, you get a hot meal, comfortable bed, and you get a trade ticket and a 36-month work visa in the European country of your choice. Spain needs 400,000 workers for the coming tourist season. Why not be a bartender in Barcelona instead of killing people in Ukraine? Yeah. Speaking of David Frum from The Atlantic magazine, do you think, David, that Putin has bitten off more than he could chew here? You, you had a fascinating Twitter thread the other day about the potential for a, a long-term insurgency in Ukraine, maybe guerrilla warfare tactics going forward. I don't know. Does this turn into like Putin's own version of Vietnam? I, I don't see any path to success. For Russia, I only see a path to suffering. If, they, if the, the war didn't succeed in the first 72 hours, it's not going to succeed, and it didn't succeed in the first 72 hours. Yeah, and this, and he seems like a guy who's cornered now. It, the, the war is not gone as he planned. We now see attacks on civilian targets. How desperate could this get? We we've heard him talk about a nuclear option, and this, that's the nightmare scenario. The, the guy seems unpredictable. What, do you, what is the worst-case scenario here in your mind, and what's the best case? I, I don't want to drift to worst-case scenarios. They're pretty bad. But the, we don't need, yeah. the, the scenario we face right now is terrible. Hundreds of thousands of refugees, um, uh, cities pulverized, um, how many thousands of people dead? Even by the official statistics, um, which are probably low on both sides, the, the number of civilian and military casualties in this one week um, is, in, is in the thousands. Yeah. Um, what on earth is this for? The Russian plan, it, it's not only wicked, it's stupid. Um, and it's not going to work. All of, and, and there is the only question is how much human suffering we, ha- we inflict and suffer before Russia fails, as it's going to fail. Last question for you, David. How do we get out of this? I mean, I listened to President Zelensky this week talk that he would like to have a face-to-face meeting with Putin. There have been some talks between the two sides that don't seem to be going anywhere. You know, as the talks go on, there's bomb, bomb, uh, bombardments of civilian targets. What is, is there any kind of path out of this for Putin, give him some sort of an escape route, an off-ramp, where he can withdraw and maintain, to somehow declare some sort of a victory? I think it's too late for that for him. Um, he's already taken uh, such terrible casualties um, that there's no prize that's worth what he's done. And and, he, and he's attacking people whom he says are my fellow countrymen. And the city he's polarizing, Kiev, is the, is the center of, of Russian civilization. It was it was Russia before there was, there was Russia. Um, the only the, the fastest path out is 
with a combination of military defeat by the Ukrainians and economic offers from Europe that the Russian army begins to dissolve. And first dozens, then hundreds and thousands of Russian soldiers come over to our side and say, you know what, I'd rather have a job than be involved than be a killer. David from thank you for your time today. Very grateful to you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. All right, welcome back. The conflict uh, dragging on in Ukraine. There have been massive explosions heard today in Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. We had that firefight outside of a nuclear plant last night. That was scary for a while. The fire is out. The nuclear plant is the largest one in Europe. It is now in control of Russian forces. Yeah, it's a scary time for the world right now. And NATO at this point saying, we're staying out of it. We will not engage Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine. We will not put a no-fly zone over Ukraine, too. But if Putin continues to roll through Ukraine, if he attacks any other countries, of course, notably a NATO member country in Europe, well, that obviously would change Everything. U.S. President Joe Biden in his State of the Union address this week, drawing that line in the sand, telling Putin, do not cross it. Have a listen to this. This is Biden speaking the other night. We have mobilized American ground forces, air squadrons, ship deployments to protect NATO countries, including Poland, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And as I've made crystal clear, the United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. Yeah, U.S. President Joe Biden in his State of the Union address. Let's talk about how Canadians are feeling about the war right now with my guest Steve Mossop, Executive Vice President of the Leger Polling Company. They've got a brand new survey out on this one. Steve, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. How concerned are Canadians right now about the conflict in Ukraine? What did you find out? Well, it's one of those stories that we're just glued to social media, television sets, radio, etc. And it's universal. I mean, everybody in Canada, 90% at least, are concerned and are following it closely. It is interesting uh, with the results that we have because on every measure that we collect, we do have a comparison to the USA. And I'll point those out as, as we go along. But Americans are concerned, but not as, as concerned. It's about 20 points lower. And it's interesting that the, if you're Republican, you're less concerned than you are if you're a Democrat. Whereas in Canada, it's, it's really universal. It's not uh, partisan. Okay, so Canadians typically more worried than Americans? Is that fair far to say? Far more worried, yes. Far more worried. And, and I think, you know, you look at our history, we've got 200,000 Ukrainian uh, uh, folks that live in British Columbia and 300,000 in Alberta. I mean, it's, a, it's a huge part of our Canadian social fabric, and it's not maybe the same in the USA. Yeah, the nightmare scenario here is that this somehow spirals out of control into a wider conflict in Europe, and we heard that clip from the U.S. president there drawing a line in the sand and telling Putin, do not, do not cross this line, do not think about invading any other countries. Putin has talked about a nuclear option, putting his nuclear forces on alert. There are calls from some quarters for NATO to get engaged and involved here. NATO so far resisting that, but it does have the potential to develop into a wider, wider crisis, obviously, and I know that's a big concern for Canadians and Americans, too. What did you find out on that score? 
It is. It's two thirds of uh, Canadians, and this is this was measured, uh, you know, five days ago. So things, I'm sure, have escalated since then. But two thirds of Canadians feel that the Russian invasion has the potential to develop into a world war, and about a similar number, just a little bit below that, 62 percent in America. Yeah. Okay. So two thirds of Canadians think that you know a, a world war, which is just unfathomable thing to kind of contemplate, but it certainly is appear to be on the minds of Canadians right now. Right now, the response is largely economic sanctions on Russia, and we see Canada continuing to tighten the screws on Russia. More sanctions, more military assistance to Ukraine. We're fast-tracking refugees coming to Canada. We've slapped tariffs on Russian exports. So the sanctions are there. I know you've, you've talked to people about those sanctions and if, if they think they should be even tougher. What did you find out? We did. You know, you look at the different actions that Canadians support, and it, it, it's really quite divided because uh, 45% say the first steps are that we do need to impose stronger economic sanctions, and we're seeing that on a daily basis. Almost every every hour you're seeing another step that's been in place, and Canadians uh, are, are supporting that for the most part. But there's also a percentage, uh, a small percentage, uh, 14%, who think that we should go further and, and have military action against uh Russia and to defend the country of Ukraine. Wow. Okay. So yeah, there is. So what's the percentage want military action? How, how many people and, want to do that? Sixteen uh, percent of Canadians feel that we should yeah. do military action. And then there's a caveat as yeah. well: potential military support is if we have to join NATO, then it rises to fifty-two. So as we heard in the speech that you clip that you just played, that it, uh, it, that is the line in the sand. And, and there's a vast majority of Canadians that support that. But here's where it gets interesting. So the USA, it drops to 38%. And there is a difference. And it stems from the fact that when you look at the overall support for Ukraine versus Russia versus uh, a neither approach, Canada is almost universally behind supporting Ukraine. It's 83%. And the rest of Canadians are mostly neutral. Uh, in the USA, the neutral number is 25%. They don't want to support either. It's not, our, it's not our problem. It's not our situation. And I found that an interesting difference when you have 15% of Canadians saying that uh, they've taken neither side uh, versus 10 points higher for the USA. Steve, thanks for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right, let's keep talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine now. The suffering of civilians getting worse on the ground. Refugees streaming across the border into a neighboring Poland. The NATO Defensive Alliance once again reiterating this morning there will not be a no-fly zone imposed over Ukraine. NATO forces do not plan to be engaging Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine. The world, though, continuing to impose sanctions on Russia and Canada tightening the screws on Russia as well. More lethal military aid flowing to Russia now. Have a listen to this. This is Defense Minister Anita Anand announcing more military aid to Ukraine. Have a listen. We intend to supply additional lethal aid to Ukraine, which includes up to 4,500 M72 rocket launchers and up to 7,500 hand grenades. These weapons will be drawn from the Canadian Armed Forces' existing stockpiles and will be transported to the region as quickly and safely as possible. 
All right, that's Defense Minister Anita Anand. Let's talk about Canada's latest steps here against Russia with my guest, Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Randeep is a member of the House of Commons. He represents Surrey Centre. He is a sitting member of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Ottawa. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Okay, let's talk about some of the measures that have been announced by the government, and we've seen a lot of them here in the last 24 hours. Let's talk about that uh, military aid to Ukraine. What are we sending over there, and how will it how will it help? Uh, look, we're we're sending, uh, as you just heard, 4,500 uh, rocket launchers, 7,500 hand grenades. Uh, we've also sent uh, 1,600 vests uh, and 400,000. Uh, ration packets. Uh, we're uh, sending 100 anti-tank weapon systems and 2,000 rockets as well. So uh, uh, Canada's doing its best uh, to do whatever it can to support uh, support Ukraine in the time of need. And uh, uh, that's on the lethal side. On the non-lethal side, as I said, there's vests, there's packets, there's um, money, there's uh, uh, aid. There's also uh, assisting people trying to escape Ukraine. Um, giving them uh, quicker access to immigration to Canada. Uh, once they come here, they can work right away uh, if they choose to. Uh, so we're opening every avenue we possibly can to assist uh, Ukrainians in a time of need. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. Like for, for Ukrainian refugees that want to come to Canada here, whether temporarily or, or permanently, what is Canada doing to assist that? Uh, so Canada's uh, done a, uh, a rapid, they're putting more resources towards uh, processing any visa application, making a very simplified uh, uh, process, basically just covering security uh, uh, measures and, and background screening of anybody coming. But other than that, trying to streamline any uh, uh, visa processes for uh, those fleeing. And then the, once they arrive, they're able to get a uh, open work permit so they can they can work immediately. And then uh, uh, the goal is obviously a long term that these uh, uh, these Ukrainians will be able to go back, but those that uh, may not be able to go back or for humanitarian reasons may have to claim uh, refugee status, they will be assisted in that as well. So we're also what, making a why, call. Yep. Why not, Randy, why not, why not just drop visa requirements? This is something that the Conservatives have been asking for. Why not just drop the visa requirements? Uh, well, you know, I, I can't comment exactly on why, but there are still security concerns. There, you know, there are uh, yeah. uh, people uh, that you want to safeguard Canada from, and and there has to be some screening of that. And I think uh, for that very reason, uh, I mean, there's there's even uh, people in the uh, Ukrainian uh, government and otherwise not not the ruling government, but in opposition and others that are kind of uh, Russian surrogates and and supportive of the Russian regime. So we have to make sure that we're not allowed allowing those that are sympathetic uh, towards that to be entered in through the guise of being Ukrainian. So uh, there is some screening methodology, but it's a a very light screening, and and I think it'll be a very easy visa process for Ukrainians wishing to come to Canada. Okay, speaking to Randip Sarai, Liberal MP for Surrey Centre, as Canada continuing to impose more, more sanctions on Russia, more lethal military aid flowing to Ukraine. Uh, there are all. There's also new trading sanctions and tariffs on Russia. Finance Minister Christian Freeland announcing that yesterday. Let's have a listen to what she had to say on that. I'm announcing that Canada will be the first country to revoke Russia's and Belarus's most favored nation status as a trading partner under Canadian law.
Russia and Belarus will be subject to a tariff of 35% on their exports to Canada. Okay, so a 35% tariff now on Russian goods coming to Canada. When will this kick in and what kind of impact could it have, Randy? Uh, I believe it kicks in right away and it'll... Uh uh, any products that are coming in, it'll, including Belarus, it'll kick in onto that. Um, we're also sanctioning over a thousand members, uh, uh, Russian individuals and, and groups, uh, and entities, uh, and freezing their assets here. Uh, what we've done is very unprecedented as well as we've, uh, uh, uh asked for an asset freeze and dealings with, uh, Russian sovereign wealth funds and the Russian central bank. Uh, so no Canadian banks or financial institutions can deal with them. And they have uh, approximately 600 billion in reserves globally that are held in foreign banks and in foreign currency. So uh, this is really something that uh, many never thought would happen. And I don't, I don't believe even Putin thought would happen. And so it's, it's going to dampen and, and really severely uh, tamper his, his war measures and his, his, uh, uh, his ability to feed this war uh, when uh, all these 600 billion plus in, in foreign reserves are tapped, uh, foreign trade is limited. And even though those countries that are uh, still on the neutral fence line, uh, they are having to uh, be very cautious uh, uh, to places like South Africa or India, uh, because anyone dealing with the Americans or NATO allies or other uh, or Canadians who have put sanctions uh, fear triggering any sanctions on companies relating or uh, doing business with Russia. So it's having a very severe impact on them financially, and it's not over yet. I think. Uh, uh, Minister Freeland uh, and Minister Jolie and Minister Anand are looking at every avenue uh, to to hit uh, the Russian aggression hard, uh, financially, uh, uh, militarily, wherever we can help uh, uh, to constrain it and, and hopefully have uh, uh, President Putin uh, halt this and retreat back. What about the, these Russian oligarchs like Putin's billionaire buddies? And we've heard about we've seen lots of other countries taking action against them and seizing and freezing assets. You know, you see countries like France and Germany are seizing these massive yachts that are owned by these Russian oligarchs and billionaires. Has Canada done any of that? I know we've talked about doing it. Have we actually frozen or seized any money or assets belonging to these Russian billionaires? So we've asked uh, uh, to freeze over a thousand of these uh, uh, oligarchs, uh, entities, their companies uh, uh, in Canada, including uh, uh, I think 351 members of the Duma, so their their parliament that supported uh, uh, these uh, so-called independent states. Um, so we've we've done that, and as well as the 10 key individuals who are kind of uh, dealing with uh, Russia's energy sector. Uh, now I can't say exactly which ones have been frozen, how much has been frozen. Those are information I don't have, and I don't know the extent of Russian investments in Canada, but places like the UK and, and Germany, you've seen, uh, you know, in London and, and central London, there's a lot of uh, uh, oligarchs and their assets are being frozen. Yachts are being seized, uh, whether they're in Germany or in France, uh, or the US has, has been seizing them. Uh, so you are seeing an aggressive uh, a global uh, attack on on any uh, uh, supporters of, of uh, Russian uh, uh, President Putin uh, and or wherever his sovereign funds or other funds are. Randy Sarai, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike, and thank you to all your listeners.
All right, let's talk about sky-high gas prices in British Columbia. Now the highest in North America, going ever, ever higher here now, of course, with the conflict in Ukraine, putting pressure on gas prices upward. We had the highest gas prices in North America before. We still do, but the price set to soar. Maybe two bucks a liter? Is that how much you could be paying for gasoline in B.C.? By the way, the B.C. carbon tax set to go up again April 1st. It will go up another penny a liter. So gas prices are going to keep going up. Got a great panel standing by on this. Have a listen to this here now. Premier John Horgan speaking earlier this week. He was asked, hey, what can you do about these sky high gas prices? Have a listen to what he had to say. Uh, We're going to look at whatever tools we can to make life more affordable. But I think British Columbians also understand that we have a sophisticated in our urban centers, sophisticated public transit systems that are options if prices become too unaffordable in the short term. Okay, so if gas prices are too high, park your car, take the bus. Let's discuss now with my guest, Peter McCartney, climate change campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this again. Also on the line, Chris Sims, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Chris. Hey, thanks for having us. Chris, let me go to you first. Sky-high gas prices, like you're calling for them to what? Cut the cut the carbon tax? Freeze the carbon tax? What? It got, well, again, we, uh, we know that there's a lot of factors that are going into what's causing a very high oil price right now. But uh, one of the things that the government actually has control over is taxes. And so around 72, 73 cents per liter that you're seeing on the price in Metro Vancouver is taxes. 27 cents of that is the combined first carbon tax and the second carbon tax, the the government fuel standard. If they got rid of those two taxes, if the prime minister got together with the premier and got rid of those two taxes, you'd save 27 cents a liter, about $20 every fill up for your minivan. So that would provide immediate relief. What about climate change? Our emissions keep on going up here in B.C. anyway, and we've had the highest carbon taxes in North America since 2008. It's not working uh, to actually reduce emissions. If we want to actually tackle global emissions, we need to work on the big end of the arithmetic. We need to get places like India using much cleaner burning fuels than they are right now, and then we could make some differences. Okay, Peter McCartney, your thoughts? You know, as you mentioned, the carbon tax is going up one penny at the end of the month. Whereas, from my understanding, gas prices rose 15 cents overnight this week. Um, This is just such a minuscule part of the real problem. And the problem with gas prices is that we are reliant on this fuel that is prone to, like, dangerous swings um, whenever some uh, petro state decides to invade another country. And so, you know, what I'm advocating for and what I hope I'm hearing from the premier is a massive emergency-level rollout of public transit across the province. Um, We can do this. You know, it doesn't take that long to get more buses on the road. And imagine, you know, my sister texted me last night, and she said, gee, what's the gas price in Vancouver? And I didn't know. Imagine being able to not pay attention to the price of gas because it doesn't matter anymore because you have a bus that comes reliably every seven minutes within walking distance of your home. And that's where we need to get to. And I think we can do it in the short term. Okay, well, I didn't hear Horgan promise some sort of massive emergency rollout of vastly expanded transit services. I, I think what he said there was if the price of gas is too high, then we have sophisticated transit options, in his words, for you to get around instead. But, Chris, I mean, your thoughts on that, like, 
you know, okay, we've got a, a developed tra- transit system in Vancouver. Some people would say we need more. But, I mean, man, you get out to the burbs or out to the other parts of British Columbia, they don't have a, a, a sophisticated transit system. But your thoughts? No, imagine living in, you know, South Surrey, because that's where you can afford to have found your basement suite for your family and your job is over in Maple Ridge. You're, you're taking the existing transit right now to get over there? What if you're a tradesperson on top of that and you've got tools? What if you've got little kids? You know, it's, I think it's nice for people, and I truly mean this, um, to be so urban and physically fit and able-bodied to not know what the price of gasoline is. That's great. Um, the vast majority of people in British Columbia don't and can't live like that. And they're the ones getting kicked in the face right now with these high gas prices. And again, we know that there's external forces that change the actual price of the gas. But the taxes, that is wholly in the power of politicians to change, and they should be giving serious relief. Let me, uh, Chris, let me ask you something. Like, I just got an email from a listener saying, oh, yeah, Chris Sims on again. All she does is complain about taxes. What about we've got a climate change emergency? We had hundreds of people killed wildfires and the heat dome you know this is an emergency you're not a climate change denier right i mean you you accept that the climate is changing because we're burning fossil fuels sure but the problem is is the emissions keep going up the british columbia government's own data shows that the emissions in this province have gone up 11% over the past three years. They have gone up in five of the last seven years. Even the Sierra Club, a couple years back, said that this was a failure and a token effort. So well, that's not maybe, working. Well, maybe that means the carbon tax is too low. Oh, right. Maybe we should just not be able to afford to grow our food or heat our homes or get to work or do any of those things. The problem is, is we're not the big end of the arithmetic here and the carbon tax isn't helping it. There's other things we can do like carbon capture, capture the emissions, turn them into resource elements and make other stuff out of them. There's alternatives to carbon taxes. Okay, Peter, what do you say to that argument that we already have high carbon taxes and the emissions are going up anyway, so it doesn't work? So emissions have gone up in British Columbia, but they've gone down based on our economic uh, GDP and they've gone down based on our population. Um, so emissions have increased and that's a problem. Um, obviously, I, that is my number one concern is this province, um, but they're increasing because of things like people driving bigger vehicles. They're increasing because of things like the uh, gas industry ramping up production. And so you're right, we do need to... Um, steer that curb downward. And the best way we can do it is creating complete communities, you know, filling in, uh, ending single family zoning in neighborhoods so that people have enough people in a neighborhood to be able to service it with public transit. Um, and this massive expansion of transit. These are the things that we need to do in order to bend that curve downward. And we can do them. We have, we have the technology today. We don't have to rely on, you know, fantasies like carbon capture and storage. Okay. Real quickly, Peter, the carbon tax set to go up one cent, like he's, like he's said, I mean, not a lot in the bigger scheme of things, but do you think the carbon tax should be even higher? The carbon tax is going higher, and it is one of the best policies that we have, the one of the most efficient ways to make people uh, choose the less polluting options. And if you're a low-income person, if you make under $44,000 a year, you get 200 bucks back at the end of the year for the carbon tax. Um, okay. So it is going higher. It's going to be $200 a year by 2030, but it's not going to matter because you're not going to be driving anymore.
Okay, Chris, I know you want to... Just a minute. Just a minute. Okay. Number one, you said not driving. So I just wanted to get you on the record here. And you also said you wanted to get rid of single-family home zoning. So then is your vision for what you'd want the future to be, should we all be living in kind of condo and apartment clusters and not having private vehicles at all? Like we should have like electric powered buses living in apartment collectives? That's what you want? I think that no one, if you want to live in a single family house with a private vehicle, if that's what you want, you can go ahead and do that. But the vast majority of us, um, are happy living wherever, wherever we want. It's just that those options aren't affordable and available because they have been excluded from every, um, from the vast majority of our community. And so, okay. you know, yeah, if, if, you, if you're willing to pay the, the costs of having um, a big single-family house in the suburb um, and, uh, and a private vehicle, you go right ahead. But, you know, I think that most people would be... Um, comfortable with an option like a, a larger apartment um, in, a, in a neighborhood somewhere where there's transit outside the door. All right, welcome back. It's our great carbon tax debate here. Chris Sims, Peter McCartney, and my guest, tons of phone calls. Ronnie in New West. Hi, Ronnie, go ahead. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate everyone's uh, opinions. I think we need to just stop saying, should we cancel or should we not cancel this carbon tax? Maybe we just put a pause like we've done to, for many things during the pandemic. My take is, I, I, I'm okay with the carbon tax. It is what it is, right? But the thing is, is I'm in the trade, ga- gas fitter, plumber. A lot of my friends are, family members are. We can't take our tools on the bus. We can't take our dirty clothes on the bus. Uh, we get into a lot of muck. Second of all, we, the government talks about BC. It's built on trades. If that BCIT uh, uh, institute is getting remade ab- about trade. So you're going to create thousands and thousands of trade jobs, but you've got to take the bus. Second of all, we've got a lot of guys that I know that we work extra hours just to try to get our kids to afford them to play hockey and dance classes. But now we've got to get off work early. To, uh, so we have to extend our hours even later because with the transit is definitely not going to be faster than a vehicle to rush home, get your child, take them to where they got to go, level them up onto the bus. It doesn't make sense. So don't cancel the okay. carbon tax for now, but just help us out a little bit. Just put a little pause on it. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Peter McCartney, what do you say to that? Yeah, so I, I can definitely appreciate um, the the wanting to pause the carbon tax. Again, I want to say that one cent a liter is not going to make any difference for people when prices can swing up 15 cents overnight. Um, but, you know, the reason that a carbon tax works is because it's predictable and people can make decisions based on the idea that, you know, gas is going to be a little more expensive in, in five years or 10 years. And so they can buy that electric car. Um, and so you're actually doing a lot of damage when you do things like pause the carbon tax um, like they did during the pandemic, because every time we have a government that isn't committed to uh, the schedule that um, that things are put at for the increases, uh, we, we lose some of the ability for that carbon tax to do its job. Okay, um, for trades folks, you know, we yeah. absolutely have to find solutions for trans folks to be able to get to work. Um, there's there's lots of creative solutions out there, and I'll just leave it at that. Chris Sims, your thoughts? It's not one cent a liter. The combined two carbon taxes in British Columbia are 27 cents a liter. They'll be 28 cents a liter on April well, the, 1st. The increase is one cent. Sure, the right. increase is one yeah. cent, but we're talking about 20 bucks per minivan fill-up here. Whoa. And if you are okay. driving, say Lost you're in, like if you're in Langley or Surrey, and you have Lost to drive, Chris, like, Lost Peter. Oh, 
Right, can you hear me? I'm not even sure if we're on the yeah, air. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I can still hear you, Mike. Can, can you hear me? And I can hear Peter. Can you still hear me, Peter? I'm here. Okay, yep. well, maybe we should just chat for a minute and hope we're still on the air. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about living the urban lifestyle, but, but I appeal to you, um, you know, as, as someone who likes to promote, I would probably like to say, you know, social justice issues and being inclusive. Like, if you hear from people who are tradespeople, you hear from people who are families, people who don't live in downtown urban cores, can you hear that they're suffering with these high gas prices as they are right now? Okay. Okay. I Take can... another call. Oh, Take another call here. Let's go here to Donald. Go. Uh, Ronnie in New West. Hi, Ronnie. Let's go to Donald in Delta. Hi, Donald. I, I listened to this debate about the carbon tax. We have to remember the carbon tax was brought in by Gordon Campbell as a replacement revenue for the tax breaks he gave the wealthy when he ran the province. And then when we come to the transportation issue, I, I shake my head because Mr. Environmentalist here hasn't a clue what he's talking about. We are going to spend 7 to $8 billion to extend our SkyTrain light metro system a mere 22 kilometers and for that money, we're not going to take a car off the road for that. We build SkyTrain for one reason, and that is to inflate property values by densification. This is the whole reason of transit. You go to the suburbs and look at all the suburban buses. They're empty still. People are voting with their cars. They're getting well, out of their cars. Okay, thanks for that. Well, I know people who stop driving if they have a, an effective transit option. But Peter McCartney, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's that's just not the case. If you give people a um, more affordable, more reliable, uh, ideally faster um, transit option, they will they will obviously take that. And boy, you know, there's I'm sure folks can uh, sympathize with the bus cruising past you in the bus lane, um, you know, when you're when you're sitting in traffic. So uh, there's a way to end that. And we can do it in places um, like, you know, the Fraser Valley, like South Surrey. Uh, okay. it's, it's just a matter of policy direction. Tony on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Tony. Go ahead. How are you guys? Good. Uh, go ahead. I'm a, I'm a tradesperson, so this is for your guest from Hunky Dory Land. How do you expect me to carry all my tools? Because I didn't hear it answered in the first question. Oh, that's right. You don't understand the concept of that. Of course you don't have an answer for that. Come on, guys. Okay, okay. Well, it's going to be, we're trying to keep it polite and respectful here. Peter, how do you answer that? Yeah, so the number number one thing I hear when I talk to trades folks is, you know, they're generally working on a construction site that is the same construction site every day, but they don't leave their tools there because they're going to get stolen overnight. And so when when I talk to trades folks, actually just having like storage lockers, so that they can keep track of their school uh, tools that are protected is one way that would enable them to be able to keep taking transit back to that job site every day. That's obviously not going to work for everyone, but it's an example of one of many solutions we need. And at the end of the day, you know, electric trucks are coming, they're available. So if you do need a truck, you can still have it. But we're, we're trying to make it possible for people to, uh, as many people as okay. possible, not to take the truck to work. We'll squeeze in one more call here. John and Langley. Hi, John. Go ahead. Give me 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Well, I have to agree with Chris Sims. Uh, the, the effect of the carbon tax is far-reaching, and it's just driving up the cost of living in general. In B.C., certainly you have three choices. You can eat or you can heat or you can drive your car, but don't try to do two out of the three because you can't okay. afford it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that. Chris, you want to sum up real quick? 20 yeah, seconds? Yeah, very, very briefly. Um, 
pretty much everything you eat and use around you, including groceries and all that stuff, that comes to you on a truck. And trucks use diesel. And diesel also gets nailed with these two carbon taxes in BC. So even if you are on your bike or you're taking transit, you are being affected drastically by these high, high carbon taxes in BC. Okay, Peter, 20 seconds to sum up. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about rising grocery prices, I, I can't not think about climate change and climate disasters that we've had. The drought this summer wiped out, um, you know, beef production uh, on the prairies. The atmospheric rivers took out a quarter of our poultry production. Um, climate okay. change is raising the cost of living, and the solutions to it actually can make life more affordable for people if they're done properly. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot today about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing turmoil there. It's a very dark and bleak picture in Ukraine at this moment. And we haven't seen a situation like this in Europe in many, many decades now as the world reacts to this Russian aggression. It has also sparked debates here at home in Canada about our own military spending, our own defense capabilities. Should Canada increase military spending, strengthen our defenses, especially in the Arctic, in the face of this Russian aggression. I've got an awesome panel standing by to talk about this. Have a listen to this. Earlier this week on the show, I spoke to Conservative MP Michael Chong. He's the official opposition foreign affairs critic in the House of Commons. And here's what he said about Canada's national defense strategy. Have a listen to this. Our northern border borders the Russian border. And I think for too long, we have neglected our Arctic security and sovereignty. We need to do things like uh, participate in the modernization of the early warning system, uh, NORAD's early warning system in the far north. We need to fix um, our broken military procurement system. We need to purchase the F-35 jets, accelerate our shipbuilding program so that we can have an Arctic uh, naval presence. Okay, Conservative MP Michael Chong on the show earlier this week. All right, let's discuss now. Should Canada increase military spending, expand expand our defense systems? Is our military too small? Let's discuss now. we got both sides of it for you. Hugh Siegel on the line. Hugh is a political strategist. He's a former chief of staff to then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hugh Siegel, thanks a lot for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is Eve Engler. Eve is a peace activist. He's with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Hey, Eve. How's it going, Mike? It's going good. Thanks again for coming on. Hugh Siegel, let me go to you first. When, when that question is put to you, is Canada's military too small? Are we underdefended? Are we under-resourced? Should we increase military spending? Especially right now when we're seeing what's going on in Europe. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Mike, um, for a country of 38 million people and the second largest landmass in the world and three oceans where we have to have a presence to protect our sovereignty and defend our interests, our armed forces, even though the people who make them up do a tremendous job, tremendous courage, hard work, and our people to whom we give great credit is simply too small. Our Air Force is too small. Our Navy is too small. You know, the Canadian Armed Forces only has, now think about this, 22,000 people in the Army who can actually be deployed. That's a very tiny amount. And we need to invest in Arctic security. Remember, Putin has made it perfectly clear that he's not only unhappy with the fact that Ukraine is a separate country, he's not happy with the fact 
that a whole bunch of countries that now border Russia, which are democracies now and are part of NATO now, which used to be part of the old Soviet Union, he thinks they should all be brought back into the Russian Empire. Well, one border that he also faces is the Arctic border with Canada. They're our largest, um, and that is an issue which we are not now, in my view, prepared to address, and we have to invest so as to be able to do so. Okay, Eve Engler, what do you think of that? Well, I disagree strongly. I think that the Canadian military is actually uh, too big. We put too much of our social resources into a force that is structured to fight with the U.S. uh, military around the world. And if you look at the history of Canadian warfare, if you look at uh, the bombing, NATO bombing of Libya in 2011, you look at the war in Afghanistan from uh, early 2000 to mid-2010s, if you look at Canada's role in bombing Serbia in 1999, uh, it left lots of death and destruction. And the Canadian military is oriented towards expanding American military power around the world. And we have real security threats. The climate crisis is a real security threat. There's another UN report that came out uh, a couple of days ago that just further documented what people in Lytton, B.C. and uh, the lower mainland with the floods uh, learned that all around the world, uh, people are facing ever greater uh, climate disturbances. Also, we have we still have a pandemic, a global pandemic that requires social resources to be put into, you know, public health. Um, uh, what we ha- what we're seeing uh, taking place in the Ukraine is this horrible Russian invasion, uh, this aggressive uh, militaristic invasion that's in part response to the militarism of the U.S. and Canada with expanding NATO, with, with uh, putting nuclear weapons all across Europe, uh, with, with uh, uh, overthrowing a government in 2014. So the militarists in Canada alongside the military and U.S., alongside the militarists in, in Russia, have brought uh, the populations to a situation that is a terrible one, and now they're using this to justify expanding militarism. Okay. It's, it's okay. a... Okay, let me go to Hugh Siegel, get his thoughts on on those points. Hugh, your thoughts. Go ahead. Well, look, um, NATO is a defensive organization. It was set up by Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent and others after World War II, particularly to protect Europe from the Soviet Union, which was aggressive and which was going to be using its military to expand its circumstance. It has not fired a shot in 50 years, but the fact that it existed as a defensive organization and you cannot look I, I I respect the view of the Foreign Policy Institute and it's a legitimate left-wing view about how the world should operate and I respect that it's an important part of the debate sadly the real world doesn't operate that way when we sent peacekeepers peacekeepers Mike Pearson 1956 to Suez we had the ability to send 5,000 members of our own armed forces on our own ship and our own planes to keep the peace. And the Poles, by the way, from the Iron Curtain, were with us in that job. We would not have the capacity to do that today. So whether you want the armed forces for humanitarian work or for peacekeeping or on occasion for combat when there's no other choice, you have to have the ability okay. to deploy, and we do not have that ability. Okay, Eve Engler, go ahead. Very clear. NATO, NATO, Canadian general led the NATO bombing of Libya in 2011, which Mr. Siegel uh, supported. Uh, Canada's NATO, NATO forces were involved in Afghanistan for almost two decades. 
NATO was involved in bombing, illegal bombing of Serbia in 1999. Mr. Siegel supported the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. He actually wrote columns criticizing the French government for not supporting the invasion of Iraq that left hundreds of thousands of people dead. What Russia has done is a clear violation of international law. It's the worst uh, war crime that we've seen since the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. This is, this is not the direction that any okay. sane person wants to go. But we don't, you don't, we don't get out of this by doubling down on militarism. And that is where we're going right now, which is very, very uh, scary, with, okay. particularly when you're talking about nuclear-armed countries. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue debating military spending in Canada, there are calls in some quarters to increase Canada's uh, national defenses, increase military spending in light of the Russian aggression we're seeing. We've got a great panel on it. Hugh Siegel, he says we should expand our military. Eve Engler says we should not. Lots of calls on it. Let's go to your calls right now. Nathan and Burnaby. Hi, Nathan. Go ahead. Hi there, Mike. Um, I just want to say that what's happening around the world here in Libya, Syria, um, especially with the Armenian genocide against Turkey and now with Ukraine, um, this is legitimate, a clear warning that we Canadians need to strengthen our Air Force, our, our Navy, our military expenses, everything all around, because what we have right now against other nations is a complete joke. Okay, Eve Engler, what do you say to that? Well, the Canadian military is... Uh uh, 12th biggest uh, military spender in the world. We have less than 0.5% of the world's population, and it's more than 1.1% of world military spending. Um, so we're, we're, we're spending more than, than our, our per capita population of the world. Uh, if you look at the size of the Canadian military, right, about 100,000 when you talk about reserves, DND employees, uh, um, and uh, uh, over $30 billion, around $30 billion a year. Uh, if you look, just look at the size of how much land they have. They have half the land in Switzerland, right? Canadian bases. Uh, uh, if you look at what they're spending right now, what's in the books right now spending, we're spending $80 billion on new naval uh, combatant vessels that have these Tomahawk missiles that can be shot 1,700 kilometers, that can be launched by American radar systems. Okay? That $80 billion, that's just up front. The life cycle estimate is $286 billion dollars. At the same time, we're, spending, we're buying new fighter jets, which is $19 billion yeah. up front, uh, 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 towards $80 billion over the life cycle. Okay, I mean, let me get... Incredible uh, sums. Let me we, give, have real, we have real climate emergency. Yeah, let me give Hugh a, Hugh a chance here. Hugh Siegel, go ahead. Yeah, well, um, I disagree with Eve, and I certainly agree with your caller. First of all, uh, let's be clear. Um, there are a whole bunch of NATO countries, including countries that are much smaller than Canada, who spend a much higher percentage of their gross domestic product on defense than we do. We spend about $26 billion a year. That's about 1.3% of our gross domestic product. There are countries in NATO who spend three times as much. We're not doing our share. And, of course, when you don't have the ability to deploy either for peacekeeping or humanitarian or military purposes, people look at you around the table and they say, you know, um, you know big hat, no cattle. Uh, all, all help short of real aid. We have to have the ability to deploy. It's the government's right, the parliament's right to decide how and when and for what purposes. And that's always going to be a, an important debate. But if we don't have the capacity to deploy, our views will not matter. And the humanism and the compassion we want to bring to the world won't count. Okay, let's go back to the phone line, speak to Kelly on the line, calling from Kamloops. Hi, Kelly, go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Uh, yeah, I'm... Uh 
Canadian Armed Forces veteran, and, uh, you know, I just think that the funding is way too low for the defense of Canada. Um, we depend too much on NATO and the United States in particular. Um, our Arctic uh, is opening up now. More and more traffic from the world is going through there. Uh, we need, uh, you know, uh, Canadian defense and patrol up there more than ever now. Um, you know, if you look back in history, Canada was always a, a military force to reckon with, and they probably still are in a small way right now, but during World War II, I mean, we were the third or the fourth largest just about everything, uh, and maybe not yeah. infantry, but certainly Air Force and Navy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been dwindled down since the 60s, I think, to, to what we are now. Um, I was a peacekeeper in, in 1973, and, uh, you know, we could start to see the cutbacks then. And it wasn't just uh, military hardware. It was, uh, okay. you know, things like clothing and stuff. And, you know, that's a joke. It, it needs to be funded properly. We need to make our commitment to NATO. Thank you, Kelly. on the U.S. Thank you, Kelly, for your call. Eve, when you hear a call like that, like when he mentions the Arctic in particular, like when you take a look at our defenses of the Canadian Arctic, do you not do you not see a, a Russian threat there? Or do you think that the Russian threat in the, in the Arctic is over-exaggerated or what? Well, I mean, I think the, the country that hasn't signed the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, or hasn't ratified it, is not Russia. It's the U.S., right? So when we're talking about our, our, you know, our territorial waters and, our, you know, resources under, under and all that kind of stuff, the U.S. hasn't ratified it. So, hmm. so Russia is less of a concern than, you know, there's, there, there are claims being made on different sides and, and those should be dealt with through the, the legal apparatus that exists. But, but, the U.S. hasn't even ratified the convention, so okay. who, who's outside? But I think I think we've got to go back more, like, a little bit historically. There is only one war in the history that Canada's fought that was morally justifiable, and that was World War II. Boer War of the late 1800s, First World War, the Korean War, bombing of uh, First Iraq War uh, in the early 90s, uh, bombing of uh, Serbia, uh, of Afghanistan and Libya. None of those wars can be argued that they served a positive purpose. That's the reality of Canadian military history. Let, let, me, let, let me just get uh, Hugh's response on that in the interest of time. Hugh Siegel, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I disagree with Eve with great respect. Look, um, let's just think about the Korean War. The Korean War was started because the uh, North Koreans and the Communist Chinese decided to invade South Korea. Um, the United Nations declared a police action. It was a United Nations police action. A whole bunch of countries went. Canada was the third largest force to go. We had a much larger navy and a much larger army at that time, and Canadians made a substantial contribution. And if you talk to Koreans today, both those who are part of the Canadian family, they will always remember that Canadians stood for their freedom against communist tyranny. So I think those are the sorts of wars where, especially when the UN says something has to happen, we should be able to deploy and do our job properly. Okay.